Hello, friends. We are back of episode 120 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. This is the weekly podcast where we tell you about all the cool resources, very informative resources that are being shared every single week on ourweekly.org. My name is Eric Nance, and as always, I am joined by my spectacular co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. A little excited. We have a new recording platform that we're testing out today. So uh, fingers crossed that you are hearing the first and only recording of this particular episode. In this case, let's hope that no news is good news, as I say. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's been a, another fantastic uh, week of highlights here and another resources. And the curator this week is, look at my notes, oh yes, it was yours truly, and second in the rotation this year, and I was curating this issue while um, frantically, or maybe not so frantically, watching a very uh, engaging playoff game, intentionally multitasking and give the team I was rooting for good luck. And yes, they did pull it off in overtime, so I think it worked. So, haha, for superstition, it strikes again. <laughs> Whatever works. Whatever works. But um, yep, we're. We're here to talk about some great resources. As always, I want to give a great thanks to the community. I think I merged about five or six poll requests, so lots of great contributions being shared by all of you around the world. So thank you for that. It made curating this issue so much easier. So let's get right into it, shall we? Well, it is a big first highlight here because we have a new version of R to talk about. R version 4.3.0 recently hit the sources page and now binaries should be ready to go as we record this and while i wouldn't say this has quite as many groundbreaking new features as we saw in some of the previous uh, point releases there is a a few set of areas that i think as a user you're definitely going to appreciate and you might say it has a little spin on being a little more strict on things but this is a case where I think being strict is good because I don't know about you, Mike, but some of the most painful issues I have when developing my R code, especially when I debug it, is that the code is running. There's no like visible error, but the results don't make any sense. Well, we're going to cover a few areas that now our version 4.3 is going to try and shore up for you to alert these issues from happening to you with some more informative error messages. And we want to give a great shout out to Russ Hyde, data scientist at Jumping Rivers, who put this comprehensive list together of new features in their latest blog post. So one aha moment as I was reading through this is the idea of conditional operators and the length of vectors. So in the R object system, so to speak, we have a fundamental object type called vectors. That is, of course, you know, a set of one or many types of elements in a single vector. Now, unlike other programming languages, a vector of length one is still a vector. Other programming languages do call that something different, like a scalar or one element, you know, thing, whatever the technical term would be for that particular language. Well, sometimes this can be an issue when you're supplying vectors into conditionals where, say, you have a classic if statement or a while statement or other things that are being checked, typically you want the result that is going to be checked to be an either 
true or false, a single element of that. There have been times in the past where I thought I was feeding in an expression that would evaluate to a single true or false, but I made a boo-boo. I ended up feeding a multi-length vector of true or falses. And in the past, you might see that this still technically goes through because the default behavior for R until recently was to always use the first element of that vector to form the basis of what it should do in the next step of processing. That may not be what you intended. Now, in version 4.2, they introduced, um, R introduced a system where it would print out a warning if the length of that vector being supplied in, say, an if condition was length greater than 1. Well, now in version 4.3, that's not a warning anymore. It's going to stop dead in its tracks with an error message, which I think is a good thing because you don't want to be the victim of what can be a great operation of recycling, or in this case, just silently grabbing that first element of a multi-element logical vector. You want to know on the spot that, hey, what you thought was going to be a single Op, a single value turns out not single and it's going to stop like i said stop dead in its tracks with that warning now as i'm reading through russ's great summary here i realized that this was the first time i really appreciate the difference between how you can construct these conditional operators you have in the case using the and operator or the ampersand you could have an ampersand that's a single ampersand in your conditional or a double ampersand with two, you know, one by one right afterwards. I have always just used the double version of it without really knowing why. Well, now we know why as of this post. The double version of an ampersand or if you're doing the or conditional, the pipe or the vertical pipe, however you want to call it, when you use the double version, that is meant to compare two single values side by side. The single ampersand or the single vertical pipe is helping you compare multiple vectors of the same length where it does element-wise comparison to say if they're both true or maybe one is true, one is false, and the like. Well, my takeaway for this is I don't really ever have a need to do the single version of it, so I'm always going to now default to the double version of it just to keep me safe, so to speak. But... Again, in our version 4.3, if you supply a multi-element true-false vector in one of your if statements or other um, similar functions, R is going to have an error. So that is a change from the default behavior in the past, where recently it was a warning, and before version 2, it was no warning at all. It would just still proceed. Again, one of those silent issues that can trip, especially those new to the language, uh, up quite a bit. There are other interesting nuggets here in Russ's post about using the colon operator when you generate sequences. This is an interesting uh, phenomenon as well, where typically an operator like this, and if you're familiar with R a bit, you might know that operators like the colon, the plus, the minus, are actually functions under the hood. You just don't quite see it intuitively. An operator like the colon expects that you're only going to put a single number in the left or the right to say going from 1 to 10 or something to that effect. 
Well, apparently, this could be another case where maybe you accidentally put in a vector of numbers in the left and the right. And R will still technically work with that setting, but with recycling, it may not do exactly as you expect. Well, in R4.3, it will still technically work, but it's going to warn you when this situation occurs so that you at least get to get a heads up that maybe that's not quite what you intended. And you can also set an environment variable optionally to instead of sending the warning to have a big error instead as your default. So again, you can opt into that more strict checking of having single or multiple values being supplied in an operator like the, the sequence or colon operator. So again, these are really kind of in the weeds a little bit, but I think that's the major focus of this release is a little more tighter checking on these situations where maybe recycling was not what you intended. And there are some great additional nuggets in this R, R update. Um, and we have a link in the show notes to a more detailed, you might say changes or news of this release. A couple of the things I saw that caught my eye were if you're looking at the distribution of a set of numbers via a QQ plot to see if it's meeting normality assumptions, well, now you can get a confidence interval right then and there in that same function instead of having to build it all yourself. So that's a nice uh, quality of life enhancement, especially in the statistics visualization er arena. And then also getting to the lower level a bit, the default C++ standard that's being used in our version 4.3 will go to C++ 17, which is gaining a lot more traction in kind of uh, development circles when it's available on your host system. But it will fall back to another version of C++ if you have that. So if you're making packages that interface with C++ libraries, this may be something to keep in mind if you're on that side of the fence. But overall, looks like another very solid release. Lots of great bug fixes. I saw great notes on recent contributions from Gabe Becker and Henrik Benson, two names that we feature prominently in the R development community. So again, looks like a great release. And again, this is one of those cases where I think being strict is a good thing, especially with the havoc that can happen when you supply those multi-element vectors. So you've been warned. But hopefully it'll be a, a smoother experience for all of you out there. Yeah, no longer will you be warned. Uh, it's more than a warning <laughs> <That's true. laughs> at this point, right? And that decision to throw an error when a logical vector you know, is length greater than one and you're passing it to a function that's expecting a, a length one logical vector, that must have been a big decision. Um, I would have loved to kind of have been a fly on the wall taking a look at the internal chat uh, between the, the members of the R core team. Um, because it's been the opposite way for so long. And, and I do agree that that is, is the right decision at this point, because I think there are, there's probably, sadly, a lot of code scripts out there that are just getting by, even though they don't realize uh, that they have this, this length greater than one logical vector that's getting passed to an if statement. Um, and maybe they're not checking the console or, or maybe it's using a version of R where, where not even a warning is thrown, you know, prior to 4.2, I think. So I, I absolutely agree that for the integrity of the, the code that we're writing in R, that this was a good decision, but it was a big decision, I have to imagine. And, and this whole entire post uh, sort of reminded me, I think there's a Twitter account called 
data underscore question. Uh, I think it goes by the, the title, a question a day that posts interesting R quirk questions and answers that really sort of expose how R works under the hood with lists, factors, uh, NA handling, things like that. So that's a fun one to, to check out to see, you know, sort of in, in some of these strange one-off uh, logical vectors, th- lists, things like that, how um, you might not expect what actually happens t- to happen when you start to dive into some of these interesting use cases. So that it reminded me of that. And one of the most exciting use uh, improvements um, that, that we're going to get in my opinion that I saw in this blog post that we're going to get from R4.3.0 is some easier extraction of elements of an object by using the the underscore. Uh, And the example that I think Russ provides here is if you create an LM object, a linear model object, typically in the past to to get the the coefficients out of that, um, I could create the object first and then call the object with dollar sign coef, C-O-E-F, um, to get the coefficient from that model object. And if you are creating a workflow where you're trying to use pipes with the base pipe, now we can actually create the LM and then pipe use the base pipe underscore dollar sign coef to get out the coefficients all in one particular uh, chain instead of having to sort of instantiate that that linear model first as an object which is is really really nice that we have the ability to do that now it's another reason why i continue to to love using the base pipe besides the fact that we don't have to call an additional dependency um and i think it's a great improvement that we're going to get from our 4.3 because it's a use case that I run into all the time. So lots of lots of exciting improvements I think in our 4.3 and uh, I'm excited to install it and, and give it a, a whirl myself. Yeah. Now I don't know for those of you in the enterprise environments, it might be a little while before you see it on your production systems. But yeah, I'm definitely going to play with 4.3 and my uh, fancy schmancy uh, container setups as to get up to date on a few things, but. It is, like you touched on, Mike, great to see some more kind of quality of life enhancements to how the base pipe is is working. Because when it was first rolled out, I admit I was a little hesitant with the syntax, but I think now they're slowly starting to make it a little more intuitive for those new to it. But also those of us that are coming from the Magritte side of things for however many years I've been using it. So I've actually started using the base pipe in a package I'm creating. And it's been, you know, very successful. No major uh, friction on that. Um, it does the job and it does it well. So it's great to see those enhancements happening across the many other enhancements that are in every release. So that news file that we'll have linked in the show notes has a boatload of additional content. They'll definitely resonate, especially for those that are building tools around R, which many of us are doing every day. Yeah, that's a great. And not to go off on too much of a tangent, but I believe it's not an issue to use the base pipe in an R package that you're creating, even if you're expecting users to be using a version of R that doesn't include the base pipe. Am I correct there? Because the base pipe is just all um, sort of at compilation time. Do I have that correct? Or 
Have you seen any discussions on that? I haven't seen as much about that, but I have been careful that in my description file for the package I'm making, I am requiring the minimum version just to, you know, get a 4.1. 4.1 yeah. was a 4.1 or 4.0. Yeah, even. I think, yeah. So just to be absolutely safe, but I know that there are some ways you can introduce some back ports of various things when you have a package that's going to be used on an older version of R. I just haven't been adventurous enough to explore that yet because my fun little package is probably not going to be used in a production environment. It's looking at podcast statistics. So there you go. Hey, you never know. Yeah, well, I run with scissors all the time, as uh, Adam and Dave would say on their podcast. To our next highlight here, where we talk a lot about, you know, getting eking out that last bit of performance, especially in larger, complicated data pipelines. So this next post is a great way to showcase some tools and, frankly, the process you can do, you can undergo to really eliminate these issues. And what we're talking about here is that sometimes in the past, I would hear, one of the critiques of the tidyverse might be that there is a price to pay, so to speak, with some of the expressiveness that you get from the, the DSL, if you will, of the tidyverse language, as compared to other data manipulation frameworks and R with regards to performance, memory usage, and, and things of that nature. Well, I'm happy to say that in our second highlight, Simon Couch, who is a software engineer at Posit, has a really comprehensive post about how you can write more performant code using the tidy set of tools that you probably are using every day in the tidyverse and some real nice nuggets here of some of the lower level parts of the stack that can really give you additional bang for your buck so to speak but first let me emphasize that it's about the process right you might know there are better ways to do it but how do you go about measuring it One great tool that Simon starts off with is ProfViz. This is a package that's been created by Winston Chang on the Shiny team at Posit. And I've been using it in the context of Shiny app uh, performance you know, measuring, but it can be used anywhere in R. It doesn't have to be Shiny. So this is a great way to give you an intuitive set of visualizations to figure out, okay, what's the elapsed time that your function is running and kind of pinpointing where those bottlenecks might be. So add profits to your toolbox that's going to be a great find for you and then you may want to have a more robust estimate of this performance across a set of iterations heck we're in statistics i'm in statistics so i'd like to have me some repeated sampling if you will and that's where the bench package can come into play as your next tool in your toolbox to look at how not just one approach but multiple approaches can have for elapsed time for solving the similar problem. So in Simon's post, he has some great examples of starting off with a basic set of functions like reduce to do its own version of a sum of a sum of two numbers or more than two numbers, and you get some great uses of bench for that. Now, where does this fit with tidy code, right? Well, uh, under the pinnings of many of the tidyverse packages, we're seeing the use of another lower level package that's been created by Posit called vectors or vectrs if you want to spell it out 
This is looking at more efficient ways of doing vectorized operations in R. And it's got a lot of interesting tricks under the hood. I have not dived too much into it, but I know that in the past, uh, Jim Hester, who was a former uh, posit engineer, worked very hard on vectors to make it quite performant. And there are equivalents that vectors offers that can mirror in certain pieces some of the more, you might say, simpler syntax of many operations like filter, joining data frames by row or column, um, creating new variables, a mutate. There are a lot of equivalents in vectors for how you can do a similar thing. So this is one way is, frankly, knowing what those alternatives are, which I did not before reading this post. So there's already some great value in learning kind of going slightly lower level on what these alternatives are. But throughout the post, Simon has these great calls to the benchmark function to compare these different alternatives of the straight tidyverse version of an operation, the vectors version of an operation, and even getting really lower level with operations on a tibble itself. So there's some great, great uh, benchmarks there where you often see that, yes, the vectors version or the lower level tibble native version of a function is giving you a bit more performance. But context is king here, right? Maybe if you're in a very simple interactive analysis, you're not going to really notice. But where you really might notice is if you are a package author or you're authoring a complex pipeline that involves some pre-processing before you get into your machine learning training and validation. Then if you want to eke out some extra performance, I think it's worth your time to take a look at these different alternatives. I think it might take a little bit of practice because again, I was completely unfamiliar with what Vectors offers because again, I don't think it's meant for a typical data science pipeline that you'd want to go as low level as this. But I think where this really fits in is when you're building more sophisticated operations and you're doing things repeatedly. And that's what the tidy models ecosystem does quite a bit with its resampling routines, permutation routines. It's doing many repeated operations on these data sets. So it's important that they are up to speed with these different enhancements. But there are lots of great comparisons here. In the end, you choose what works best for you. Maybe you get the best performance in terms of development time with the native tidyverse syntax. But you may also want to eke out that extra bit, that extra reduction in time when you put this in a more sophisticated pipeline. So again, great example of how you can objectively assess and compare these different methods to each other and also be able to know about these different alternatives out there when you need to go a bit lower level. So very educational from my perspective, and I look forward to exploring packages like vectors quite a bit more as I start doing more sophisticated things with my simulation data where I make a whole bunch of it, and I got to make some quick summaries of it so leadership can make a decision off of it. No, that's a great summary, Eric. And, and ProfViz, it's just an awesome package that, that profiles your R code, provides you with that visual of how long each step in your code is taking sort of that that nested look uh, at the high level first and then the intermediary components within a particular function that you're profiling 
And if you're looking to learn a little bit more about profiling uh, your, your R code, I believe there's a chapter called Measuring Performance in Advanced R by Hadley Wickham um, that provides some great introduction and strategies for, for profiling R code. And to me, in reflecting on this post, it's amazing just how fast some of the subsetting and filtering and, and pulling base R functions are. Um, they seem to mostly outperform dplyr equivalents and I think even some of the vectors equivalents uh, sometimes. But uh, the, the vectors package equivalents seem to typically outperform both the, the base R and tidyverse equivalents. So uh, again, it's just really nice to know all of the options that we have and the pros and cons of each. And, and one thing that I've always wondered in, in developing um, my data manipulation and, and ETL R code is whether like an inner join um, or a more pure subset is a better way to filter down a data frame, um, especially when the, the filtering list is long. Um, and, the, and the example that, that Simon provides in the blog post is using MT cars, uh, and it shows that the use of, of vectors and base R, um, you know, the square bracket subsetting in base R and the use of the which function in base R is faster than a, a dplyr inner join. Um, but again, you know, MT cars is a, is a tiny data set that's being used in this example, and it would be interesting to see if this changes at all when the data quickly gets, become gets more difficult to read and, and subsequently more error prone, as we know, uh, than, than using or the dplyr join uh, equivalents. And and this is the whole whole concept, right? It's knowing all the tools uh, that we have at our fingertips and using what makes the most sense for your particular use case that day. And I would say avoiding technical debt where possible as well. You know, you could write something that, that's crazy performant because it uses uh, an awesome combination of uh, base R functions and, and vectors. But if it's, you know, 20 or, or 40 lines of code that would be the equivalent of, of one or two lines in, in dplyr, um, it might not might not necessarily make sense. It depends on whether the juice, I guess, is, is worth the squeeze and how much additional performance you're, you're getting for uh, the additional amount of code that you're having to, to write and maintain. Lots of other nuggets and examples in this blog post. Those are just a few. Uh, but the big takeaway for me is to uh, profile my functions and start doing that. There's a lot of utility here, um, especially when it comes to, to speeding up uh, slow functionality within Shiny apps um, and trying to get our Shiny apps as, as snappy as possible, which is, is something that I know you and I are, are very passionate about since we do a lot of Shiny development work, but very applicable, I think, to anyone who's, who's writing our code, uh, Shiny or not. Yeah, like I said, I've learned a lot along the way here, and I think having a disciplined approach to not just wonder what if, but really measure the impact of these different choices. That, to me, once you make this a routine, it's going to get much easier. I think it's it's not quite in the same vein as like doing test-driven development and having tests along the way every time you're writing the iteration of development, but... Being able to be proactive about finding these issues, I think, is key, especially when you get to putting stuff in production, which uh, you and I are quite passionate about and we'll be really passionate about talking about later this year, for sure. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So for our last highlight, we're going to have a little bit of a, you might say, a fireside chat here, Mike, about what are you doing about indenting your code? Well, why we're bringing this up is our last highlight comes from 
Tim Taylor, who I believe is a data scientist somewhere. I could not find much information about Tim, but in any event, um, he has this great post on his really nice domain name of Hidden Elephants. Now that's that's a that's an awesome domain name, if I do say so myself. <laughs> it sounds like a Docker container name. Oh, good call. Yeah, I wonder if I've actually had that before. I need to do analysis right. of my Docker random names, but in any event. Um, Tim brings up an issue that we've seen kind of brought up a little bit here and there, but he really articulates it nicely, is that it can be sometimes a bit difficult when you use two spaces as your default for indenting your lines of our code going from, say, an if call and, or a function definition and going down lower level Maybe then you're going into a, a pipeline with the base pipe or a Magritte pipe, and then any further on that. And he's been he's been experimenting with four spaces instead of two. Well, in his opinion, it was like a fog being lifted as he was reviewing code, and he tried to dive a little bit into this and see if it was only him that had this epiphany. Well, it wasn't. In fact, interesting nuggets here that I did not know before is that if you're writing any tools in R that are based in C or, or any kind of wrapper with C, they recommend four spaces for both R and C code. And yeah, even Perl code too. There's a callback for the old timers like me out there. <laughs> and then uh, somewhat more recently, um, I remember seeing this from before, but Roger Pang, who of course is a co-host of the very awesome Not So Standard Deviations podcast, he likes using eight spaces really easier on his eyes for reviewing then you know what fair play i can definitely see where he's coming from there and the architect of linux himself linus torvalds <laughs> he's not the biggest fan of two character indents for sure he thinks eight characters is the way to go as well so this is truly a preference thing i'm not going to tell you one way or another how you should share your indentation but do what's most productive for you I admit I've been so, you might say, muscle memory trained on two indentation. I'm okay with it right now. But it is interesting to kind of see the other side of it and maybe give it a try. See what happens if you step out of your comfort zone a little bit and see if it actually works better for you. Might give it a shot sometime. You know, you said that this is going to be a fireside chat, and I'm, I'm wondering if that's because our takes are going to be so hot on this topic. Um, but I am currently a two spacer. And like you said, this, this is one of the first posts, I guess I've seen maybe in a long time. Um, that that's a plea asking us to try to use at least four spaces, uh, for indentation. And, and like many of us, myself included, Tim had, had traditionally followed the, the tidyverse style guide when writing our code. He eventually had a hard time grokking the R code on, on his screen with just the two space indentation. And I can definitely understand that. So he decided to try using four spaces instead of two. And like you said, it, it made a giant difference for him. He finds it easier to skim through and understand his code. And he has similar feelings when looking at others code that's written with, with greater than two space indentation. Very interesting to see the R core team recommending using four space indentation for both R and C code. Roger Pang advocating for eight space indentation. That just seems that seems wild, but it's it's interesting <laughs> and not. I, I'm I'm more than willing to test this out myself. Uh, I, I can definitely see the potential benefit for maybe my brain 
not having to work quite as hard to separate nested code. But one thing that's that's holding me back at the moment from doing that is is how useful the auto indentation and auto formatting feature in R Studio particularly is, as well as I believe VS Code has has the same um, capabilities. And I know at least in R Studio, I believe it, it at least defaults to only using two space indentation when I highlight all my code and hit Control I. Um, I don't know if there's a way that you can change that default to four space indentation, but maybe uh, somebody out there listening can can let us know if that is possible, because um, that might change that that might change my opinion here. And a- another sort of devil's advocate take I-, I thought about is is how far right some of my nested shiny code would become, right? Yes. Especially when when writing shiny apps, you know, because you're you're nesting a lot of stuff within your UI within your uh, Potential bootstrap framework if, if you're using BS lib or BS for dash or something like that and then your your uh, fluid rows and your columns and, and by the time you get to actually creating the, the visual element you're already pretty far right um, on your screen so I feel like I would definitely start to hit that 80 character limit uh, more often if I was using a space indentation um, and, and probably a little bit more using four space indentation as well I do find myself wrestling with that um, on on occasion and so if you're like me you try to avoid at all costs going over that 80 character limit because you really want for the sake of, of reviewers for the sake of yourself um, using multiple screens and, and or looking on a laptop screen you really want to try to have the width of your code be be as concise as possible and as legible as possible so that's that's another thing that I, I guess I would worry about if I started to increase the indentation of my code Oh, yeah, that was where I was going to go with my uh, little hot take there, if you will. There are two pet peeves of mine. One, not having a newer feature that's come in editors of colored braces so I can quickly see where the closing brackets match in the opening bracket. And two, I hate scrolling to the right. It annoys the (laughs) you-know-what out of me because it means I have to either take my mind off of the code and have to move my mouse somewhere. And I do not like mouse movement when I'm reviewing code or having to forget what was on the left. Like to me, um, maybe I'm a bit, you know, first world problem here, but when I'm on a 4k monitor, I don't want to constrain my horizontal with when I can put the editor on the left half, if you will, put my web browser on the right half as I'm looking up docs or I'm looking at examples or the bug in JavaScript code, which I've been doing for the past month. There are lots of, lots of ways I can use that real estate. And so I don't want to, there isn't as much benefit to me of having the larger amount of spaces for any tool I'm developing. Maybe that would be a different story if I was just writing, you know, a, a, a piecemeal script here and there, but yeah, shiny apps, we are doing a lot of new lines, a lot of nesting, you know, and even some of my functions I have a lot of nesting because a lot of conditionals or looping or anonymous functions and a per call. So yes, my hot take is it's going to be a long time before I go <laughs> more than two spaces. But again, I'm little old Eric here. Your results may vary. Totally. I think it's a personal preference thing, but I think if you are interviewing for a job with Eric, uh, you might want to keep that in mind. (laughs) You heard it here first, prospective new team members. (laughs) 
Well, in spite of hot takes, you know, what's also hot is the rest of this content. We got lots of awesome resources to share with you in this issue. Had tremendous fun curating it. Always learned a lot of new things, even when I just generate the poll that our team puts together for the highlight candidate selections. So we're going to talk a little about some additional finds in this issue. And yes, with things like workshops, and first in my mind these days, I was really pleased to see a recent workshop that a good friend of ours, Peter Salimos, who is, you know, of course, a very talented data scientist over and also um, a leader of the Edmonton R user group. He has co-authored a workshop recently with Subhash Leo, hopefully I'm saying that right, which was called Data Cloning, Hierarchical Models Made Easy. So a very intricate topic of using Bayesian hierarchical mixed models but with some really great examples, online resources to share. So all the materials are on GitHub. So complete from the setup of the workshop environment, looking at a great introduction to mixed models, incorporating time series in there. Um, really, really top-notch stuff. I always really appreciate it when authors are able to put their materials out there so we all could benefit from learning these uh, great topics. So congrats to Peter and Subhash for putting these great materials out there. So Mike, what did you find? I found a couple things. Uh, the first thing that I found is the Shiny Developer Series uh, live recording at ShinyConf 2023, hosted by yours truly, uh, Eric Nance, Yay. is now on YouTube. It's an hour-long discussion with Nicola Rennie, John Harmon, Peter Salamos, uh, Pedro Silva, and Tanya Casciarelli, and it's just chock full of fantastic, shiny conversation. So boot it up, uh, put your headphones on, and, and and listen to an hour of this great content and uh, great work, Eric. Thank you so much. On this one. And, and I guess the, the other thing that I found as well, I'll, I'll call out a second one that's just of interest to me, is a blog post by Joseph Rickert uh, on our views on multi-state models for medical applications. Um, so when you're thinking about survival analysis, sometimes it's not necessarily just uh, alive or deceased. Sometimes it could be um, a progressive right uh, states. So it could be healthy, um, mild symptoms, severe symptoms, um, things like that. So when you have multiple states uh, that, that a patient could be in, I think there's that's sort of an interesting class of problems, and I always find a lot of utility, believe it or not, in uh, these sort of applications and, and taking them and applying them to the, the finance field um, because we think about a borrower borrowing a, a loan, uh, maybe not defaulting on that immediately, but maybe actually becoming uh, 30 days past due or, or 60 days past due um, before they actually d default on that particular piece of credit. So uh, we do a lot of survival modeling as well at Catchbrook Analytics for, for finance context, and we are always looking for sort of uh, unique applications that, that handle our use cases. Uh, and this might be one that I feel like could, could be very, very helpful. Yeah, great find there. Um, yeah, shout out to Joe. He's been so much, so much fun to collaborate with. He's been, you know, arguably one of the biggest drivers of the um, our submission working group that I'm a part of from the R Consortium. So shout out to Joe. And yeah, you're giving me flashbacks to my very, very early days in my graduate research, finding my dissertation, because I did a lot of research on multi-state models and competing risk models for 
the method I use to actually get out of grad school with my project and actually find a job. So yeah, lots of in my basement storage room that's right next to me in my recording studio. I have many, many, many books about those topics. <laughs> Glad to provide a little quick flashback. Yes, yeah, it's always good to reminisce. And, you know, we always have lots of great content for you to choose from in these issues. So why not grab all of it? And you can find all of it at rweekly.org. The latest issue is right there on the front page. And, of course, we love hearing from you and having your contributions to the project. I am a big proponent of the value-for-value model, and one of the best ways you can give value back to R Weekly is sending us a pull request for that great package, blog post, workshop material that's online. Who knows if it's a great benefit to the community? We want to hear about it. So... All the links are right on rweekly.org. We'll have a direct link to the draft of the upcoming issue in all markdown all the time. So it's very easy to put your notes in there. And the curator of the week will be glad to merge that in. And, of course, we love hearing from you as well on this little podcast that we do here every week. There are many easy ways to get in touch with us directly. And in fact, let's say you're you're still very happy with whatever you're using to listen to your podcast. There's no judgment here. You use whatever you like to listen to us. You can send us a boost through a website directly called podcastindex.org. Search for our weekly highlights, and then there will be a fancy little boost button right there if you want to boost from your web page instead of a podcast player. But if you do want to get on the cutting edge of some of the new modern podcast technology, I invite you to check out apps such as Podverse or Fountain. Um, they give another easy way to get set up for sending yours truly a little boost and message to help out and interact with the show, and we will read it on the air every time we get it. So you can check those out in the show notes of this episode. And also you can find us on social media, again, sporadically on Twitter. I am at the RCast, but I'm also on Mastodon. With at our podcast at podcastindex.social. And Mike, where can the listeners find you? Uh, likewise, sporadically on Twitter at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K E T C H B R O O K, and on Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. Awesome stuff. And also a quick little plug um, if you're interested in leveling up your shiny knowledge and uh, later this year, uh, definitely check out. Mike's and I's uh, workshop for shiny and production tools and techniques. I'll be teaching at PositConf, and you can find even some more, uh, you might say, materials that we'll send about that very shortly. Um, but you can head to posit.co slash conference to get registered if you're interested. And so that will wrap us up for episode 120 of our weekly highlights, another fantastic uh, session with you, Mike. So thanks so much for joining me, and also... Thanks to all of you for tuning in from around the world. And we will see you for episode 121 of our Wiki Highlights next week.